If your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 4. This morning's sermon is from Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. In this particular passage, Jesus has just come to the synagogue in Nazareth where he grew up. And he opens the scroll and he turns to Isaiah 61 and he reads it. And then in verse 20, it says, And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. In verse 21, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you, you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff but passing through their midst he went away here in this particular text this morning what do we see but jesus being rejected by his own jesus is in nazareth when he says this and this is the town where he grew up the people that he grew up with were seeking to kill him And they do it for several different reasons, which we're going to see this morning. And in this text, we see Jesus being rejected. We can begin to see why he makes such a great high priest for us, as we're going to see at the end and bring this all together. We see that Jesus can relate to you and every one of your pains and every one of your sorrows and every one of your experiences. As you sit here this morning, I have a question for you. Have you ever been rejected by those you wanted acceptance from the most? Have you ever been hated or despised? Have you ever been abused or mistreated? Have you felt the pain of people who are supposed to be on your side coming against you. If you've ever in any way, just know this, Jesus has experienced it, as we'll see this morning. And one of the first things we see in this particular passage is that Jesus is rejected by his own connections, his own community connections. In verse 22, it says this, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words That were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? 
So they're marveling at what comes out of his mouth. They can't believe what ha- happened. They're impressed with the words that came out of his mouth. So obviously he said much more than what we have just the verse prior. When Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your midst, he clearly, it, it was just a summary of what he said, and there's lots others said because they were marveled and were impressed with what he said. So clearly he said something impressive. But whatever he says, they were, they were pretty keen on it. They thought it was pretty good stuff. But now they have a question, don't they? They question now all of a sudden, okay, okay, that sounded really good, but is, is this not Joseph's son? They were not saying this with a respectful and astounded amazement, like, wow, Joseph. Joseph's son, I mean, I mean, Joseph, he's such a, this astounding man in the community, he's so highly regarded. They were saying this with disdain and a mocking tone. Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Come on now. And why? Well, Joseph and Mary, they're extremely poor. And poor people, even within this particular community, are not respected. They're not honored. They're not esteemed. They realize that he was a local kid. Jesus is a local kid. He's the son of Joseph of Mary. And there was nothing special about him in the years that he grew up. Nothing stood out. In fact, he's probably this quiet wallflower that attracted little to no attention, just went about his life. And it wasn't that he had become a rock star that everybody just couldn't wait to get around. He'd become a prophet. Now, prophets are different than rock stars. Rock stars attract people because they're cool. This prophet is attracting people because of his power, what he's doing and accomplishing. Matthew 13, actually, verses 53 through 56, give us more insight into how the people of Nazareth were viewing Jesus and his family. It says that, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this, what does he say here, the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, it says. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. Now, Jesus responds to their indignant questions, their smug remarks. Is this not Joseph's son, the carpenter? We know this family. They're, they're really, they're nobodies. It was their knowledge of his family, his connections, his upbringing, his family's reputation that caused them to doubt and to ridicule. 
And this is to fit, fulfill what was said in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 2, which declared, He grew up before him like a young plant, a, like a root out of dry ground. Like a root, you know, when a root comes out of dry ground, it's not supposed to, it, it doesn't happen. It, it shouldn't happen that way. A root doesn't spring up out of dry ground. And that's why it's an odd thing. He grows up amongst them, and it's like they don't recognize him. How is this possible? He's the son of Joseph and Mary. We know them, and they're this poor family that, you know, nobody really esteems because in that particular day, you esteem people because of their wealth. Imagine for a moment if you have known a particular poor family with snotty-nosed kids and they could barely afford shoes and they ran around in bare feet and ratty-tatty clothes and, and they're just, you know, they lived in the, the low-down section of the community. And all of a sudden, this man, one of the kids becomes mayor is in charge of anything, everything. And you knew this kid when he was that way. You're like, all right, isn't this not the guy who grew up in the trailer park and had nothing and bare feet and no clothes and and you not make you have trouble making the connection. You think how is it that he's here when this is what I remember of him over over there? And this is what these people are just they're confused that Jesus could actually be this particular person. We often don't do we not judge people by their family connections by the way that they're, who the people they're connected to, we will judge them and determine their future and who, should, who they will, will or will not become. And throughout Christ, history, one of the things that's amazing, has been amazing about Christians, have been their ability to relate to those who are of lowly estate, like it doesn't matter. Christians have had a reputation of going and, and hanging and being with and serving and ministering to the lowly. And why is that? Well, because we're lowly people. We understand one thing. This is something fundamental about our faith, is that we are sinners. We are wretches. We are no good. But the God of heaven, whom nobody can get higher, stooped down, came down in the form of man, and loved me, and gave himself for me. And because of that, Christians have never had a problem Christians of status, Christians of power, Christians of of means have never had a problem dwelling with the lowly because that's, that's nothing compared to what God has done for them. Nothing. This, this, this is what makes part of what makes the Christian faith beautiful is that if people get the gospel, do you know what they are? They're humble. They don't even, this is why race and economic class and all that disappears in light of the gospel. It doesn't matter. You don't understand how I've been loved, how God has loved me. This is no stooping on my part. God is the one who's truly stooped. God loves the lowly. God loves those who have family connections that, you know, makes them nobodies. And so do we, because that's exactly how God has loved us. 
If you, for a moment, think of people less than you because of family connections, do you know what you're doing? You're, in a sense, completely denying any understanding of the gospel. You're not getting it. The gospel is, and the good news in, in Christ Jesus is not for those who earn it, for not those who have high connections, who not for those who are of means, not for those who are highbrow, but for the lowly. Now, you can have means and be lowly and understand your state before God. But God loves the humble, as we saw last week. But they're not just rejected for their connections. Jesus isn't just rejected for his connections to this particular family. He's also rejected for not passing their test. If you look at verse 23, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Doubtless, Jesus is saying, doubtless this is what you're going to say to me. And this is indeed what they do say to him. They want to show, show us a sign. Prove to us. Come on, let's see it. Jump the hoop. Let's see you do this. Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. This is why he says what he does here. He knows why they despise him, why they reject him. He knows that they want him to prove that he's truly this great healer and miracle worker. That's why he says what he does. They want him to prove that he can do what others are saying he is doing, just so they can for sure know that, no, you know, that he is who he says he is, and he's not some fake. And, and there's just no, they're having troubles. There's just no way they can see the connection. But Jesus is having none of it. There's no way he's going to do a miracle which says, hey, hey, watch this. Check this out. Now you will believe in me. You doubt me? Watch this. Jesus doesn't do that. He's not like that. You know, if that were any of us, we'd be like, oh, you guys doubt me, huh? Watch this one. Shazam, you know, you might just start zapping a few of them and taking them down. And what do you think of that? Now who do you say that I am? Right? That, that might be our response. But now Jesus, he's having none of it. He, he just does not do anything at all. And he allows them to despise them. He allows them to reject him. He allows them to, to speak ill of him. He is not biting for a moment. Because, you know, when Jesus performs a miracle, when he does these things, why is he doing it? He is not doing it to show off. He's not doing it to prove his status. He's doing it to glorify his Father and out of love for the people. That's why he's doing it. And yes, his, his miracles do testify to him being the Son of God. But that is not Jesus' primary purpose. He's not out there trying to prove himself in the slightest. So as a result, Jesus doesn't comply with their request. And they don't like him for it. It's interesting. Because there are times when God will reveal himself. I don't know if in your mind you can think of a moment in Scripture when God will say, okay, showdown, let's have it. Remember Elijah, he, Jesus uses Elijah 
later on here in this passage. But there's another example of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. There was a showdown. Now, what's interesting there is that in that particular showdown, it was you have a group of people who are Baal worshippers, and they do not believe in Yahweh, Israel's God. They believe in Baal. And so, okay, Elijah's saying, okay, let's see who the true God is. And in that particular case, it's not like what we have here in this situation where you have those who are believers in the, in the God of heaven and earth, but not believing that this was the son he'd sent. And so now they want a sign. They want some proof. They want some evidence. That's not what these people, what, what these people are particularly doing here is not people who do not believe in God at all. They're not people who don't believe in God at all. They believe in God, but they're looking for a particular sign. So in this particular passage, in this section, Jesus is rejected for not passing the test. He didn't pass the test that they were going to give him, and God is never, ever going to jump our hoops. God is, we're never going to be able to say, God, if we do something like this, hey, God, Prove to me that you're really with me and give me a sign. He'll have none of it. You'll get nothing except judgment. (laughs) You know, God, if you really exist, and if you guys have ever seen debates of people sometimes with an atheist and a Christian, sometimes the atheists will challenge God. Yeah, if your God exists, come on, let's see something. They'll mock him. They'll blaspheme his name. And you're, you're watching thinking, oh, you're waiting for the lightning bolt. You can't believe that he's saying that. You can't believe they're getting away with it. It's like, here it comes. Like, oh, man, listen to what he's saying. But God, you got to understand something. He can take a lot, a lot, way more than you or I. He could take ridicule. He could take shame. He can take mocking. You can slap him in the face. You can do whatever you want. You're not going to get a reaction. You're not going to, he's not going to satisfy as you test him. Come on, put him to the test and see what he's going to do. However, in a scenario, and you'll actually hear stories of of this throughout Christian history, where you've got unbelievers, they just don't believe in him at all, but they believe in another God. They believe that other God is the God of whatever. And there have been showdowns, there have been tests where God shows up and says, no, I'm the true God, that God is no God at all. We always need to be careful. We always need to be careful that we don't ever test God. Because it can be easy to test God when you're doubting God. When you start to doubt, you might ask for God to give you a sign. Give me a sign, oh God, that you're really there. God, do this for me or that for me, and then I will believe. Don't ever do that. Trust God's promises in the midst of impossibility and watch him do the miraculous. You can put his promises to the test and watch him do the miraculous, but don't ever put him to the test and make him jump through your hoops. Bad idea. Bad idea. And this is what they were doing. And because that Jesus didn't jump through their hoops, what was their response? What's their reaction? They're upset. How dare he? Come on, Jesus. Let's see who, if you're truly who you say you are. 
And this ultimately comes down to this. You know, the fundamental reason why they reject Jesus is because of their unbelief. And this is... This stems from what he says in verse 24. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now this particular saying was probably a common day proverb. where It's not in the Bible. He says, truly I say to you, and he makes this statement. But according to scholars, it was probably a well-known saying that people would say, you know, a prophet's never uh, accepted in his hometown. So Jesus is using this and saying it to them. And he's saying it to them, and it's one of the reasons why they don't believe him and why they're rejecting him is because when you have hometown advantage, it's really no advantage in this case. Because we've, as I've said already, there are particular circumstances and situations, particular circumstances and situations where a person given the fact that you're a local, is a great disadvantage. The fact that you grew up amongst them, the fact that you have parents, the fact that you ha- you, they watched you grow, being close, it's no advantage at all. And in fact, sometimes it's a horrible disadvantage, especially if you do what Jesus, we're going to look at what he does. When he speaks a certain way to them, do you know what, when you're, when you're an insider speaking like an outsider to that group and you say harsh words to them, that's offensive because it seems smug and arrogant. Jesus is about to say something like, how dare you say that to us? You're one of us. Now you're acting like somebody from the outside looking on the inside. And that's often the profit of the job. Sorry, the job of the prophet is to look and declare the truth about the situation. But that doesn't come across so well. You know, if you guys have ever been in a situation with family, I don't know if you've ever been, if you were converted later on in life and you went to your family and spoke to them about what Jesus has done in your life and you get all a little preachy on them, that doesn't go over so well, does it? No. You find out real fast that they're not too interested in your experience, your Jesus. Now, who do you think you are, Right? I mean, you're going to get all kinds of reactions, all kinds of remarks, and the people who are going to be the hardest on you are the people closest to you. The people who are going to be most most unbelieving about what you're talking about and you're all excited about and you're preaching about, like, oh, yeah, look at this person now. Who do they think they are, right? They used to be one of us. Now they're standing on the outside looking in, pointing their finger at us and and making us feel all like we're we're the bad ones. They're Mr. Righteous or whatever. That's what happens. And it's a similar situation that Jesus experienced. We, are, we often find ourselves that, you know, if we're ever to have a voice with the people we're closest to, with family or the inside, you almost have to take a long time and build a strong reputation to gain a little bit of a voice. It's much easier to be the outsider, the foreigner, nobody knows, to come in and speak. That's why sometimes we say, well, let's go take them to the preacher. We'll bring family and everybody and let's, let's let them listen and we're hoping that they're listening to it because we know we could never say that. And that's really what Jesus is experiencing here. That's why a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. Because it's a disadvantage in this particular case. And it, ca- it can cause a lot of problems. And so fundamentally, this is why they don't believe it. Because he's one of us acting like he's not one of us any longer. 
So unbelief fills their heart. And because of this unbelief, because of his family connections, because of what Jesus is saying here, all of a sudden now, when he goes to speak the truth, he's rejected outright because of these particular words he says in verse 25. In verse 25 through 30, what did we read this morning? We read that he's, all he does, and notice it's very indirect. He doesn't directly say anything to them. Do you know, remember, what does he jump to? He says, he starts talking about it. Let me tell you a story. I tell you the truth. There were many widows. Well, he's talking about widows. In Israel, in the days of Elijah. This is strange uh, to me, actually. Okay, he's talking about widows in the days of Elijah, and the heavens were shut up, and there was uh, for three years and six months, and a great famine came in the land. And, and, but Elijah was sent to none of them except to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. That's all he says about that. And then he talk, gives the example, and then Elijah, he gives the example there. And to the people that he's referring to, nobody in Israel had been ministered to, had been healed. No miracles were performed in, in Israel. And the people that there were miracles performed in were people outside of Israel. These were Gentiles. This widow... And Naaman, the Syrian, were Gentiles. But they want to kill him. They're going to throw him off a cliff for, for telling and giving two examples? Well, they knew what he was saying. It's kind of like a backhand. You know the comment that's made but it's not really made? I know what you're saying. I know what you're getting at. And that, that was, ooh, that hurts Jesus. Ouch. Because what you're saying, what you're really saying but you didn't say, is that you're not going to perform any miracles amongst us because we're like Israel in the time of Elijah and Elisha. We're sinful people whom God is rejecting and God is going to these other people because that's what was happening at those times. God was, God's people were walking in sin and God was withdrawing and pulling back and God shows his favor with these Gentiles. So what you're saying, Jesus, is that we're like sinful Israel back in those days and God is rejecting us and he's going to go somewhere else. Jesus is like, yep, that's what I'm saying. I'm not doing anything here because of your unbelief. I'm not doing anything here because of your hardness of heart. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just being like Elijah and Elisha, and I'm going to go to those people far off, people not here of this place, and go to where God is actually at work. And he's not at work here. Ouch. They didn't like that. They, in fact, they hated it. You know, well, they wanted to kill him. They grab him, if you could imagine. You've got to be pretty upset. You'd be pretty upset at someone if you grab them, take him to the edge of the cliff to throw him off. I've never heard or seen of such a thing. I've seen people upset. I, well, we use guns nowadays, so it's not as personal. But this is a common reaction by people who believe that they are in the right and literally hate those who oppose them. They're convinced of their position, and they do not take lightly to opposition. We have this today with the intolerance agenda, right? 
And the funny thing is that they are completely intolerant of anyone who they consider to be intolerant. Interesting. Wait a second. I thought they had a problem with people who were intolerant. Never mind. doesn't have to make sense. Because no, no matter how consistent the inconsistent they are with their own message, it probably won't be long before you will be arrested for hate speech, for saying things like homosexuality is a sin. That's a sin. The Bible calls it a sin. And, you know, if you want to take the air out of a room, you know, it wouldn't take much. If, you know, if I was to go down to, actually, some churches around here, if I walked up and said, I have something to tell you, homosexuality is a sin, I'd probably feel the air sucked out of the room. I'm not kidding. That's blasphemy. That, in that same church, I could say something blasphemous about Christ Jesus. It wouldn't be no big deal. You know, that, that would go over much better. Because what's interesting is the culture and the day in which you live, it's funny how pressures come, right? And, and what will happen is that we will actually find ourselves... In big trouble, speaking plain, just plainly, clearly, what God says is wrong or sinful, and just calling it that. I'm not, make, I'm not saying anything about the person. I'm just saying what it is. This is what it is. If, 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 if say, this is sin, and for saying that, that is going to be considered hate speech. That's what that's going to be considered. Because when people are absolutely convinced they're right, find themselves righteous, and they're positioned to be righteous, they absolutely hate anything spoken against it. Anything. And this is what you get this reaction of not... He didn't say too much to Jesus. Sorry, Jesus didn't say too much to them other than he gave them a couple examples. And they wanted to kill him. Whoa, overreaction. And in our case, we don't even, it doesn't even have to be your statement. If you just say simply, I say that this is what God says. It doesn't matter. They'll kill the messenger. They'll grab you and want to throw you off a cliff. And the only way we can tolerate the truth about ourselves or even lies about ourselves is when we've been humbled before God. The gospel does something even to our own hearts and humbles us. If we, if we think too highly of ourselves and someone makes a comment about us that's less than what we think of ourselves, that irritates us. That infuriates us. Now, if we think lowly of ourselves and someone makes a low comment above us, but it's still a lot better than what I think about myself, that's not too bad. Man, we think they don't even know the full extent of it. <laughs> the, and what humility allows us to do is allows us to hear the truth about ourselves, receive it, listen to it, and, and make changes accordingly. Without that, you he, if you hear something, if you hear a comment about yourself, about your life, about uh, you know, God's standard... And you, th- and, and you feel like you're here, and that comment hits, 
hits below, this is the belt, hits below the belt, so to speak. We don't like that at all. That hurts, I'm offended, and I'm going to freak out on you right now because my blood pressure just went real high. And all of a sudden, I have a lot of passion, I have a lot of energy, and I've got something to say. But if there's humility, a true assessment of ourselves, a true understanding before God who we are, you know, allows us to hear the truth. It allows the truth to be spoken to our lives where we take it and we even say things, was that me? Is that what I'm like? Wow, man. Sheesh. You know, we self-reflect over it. The truth now becomes our friend. The truth is something we can actually receive. So it's always a good check. How well are you at receiving correction, rebuke, instruction? Because what it does a lot of times, it reveals our hearts and what we think of ourselves. If we think too highly of ourselves, we don't like it. What, what, here's what you need to do. Go back, get in your closet before God, confess your sins, and get a true assessment of yourself before God and realize, you know, sometimes it takes us a bit, and we do. We go, we realize, we come back out. You know what? You were right. I am an idiot. That was stupid. I shouldn't have said it. But my pride at the time when you told me was hurt, and I didn't receive that so well. And this is the great thing about, you know, this is what Jesus does to us, is when we come to meet him, he humbles us, and he makes us more like him. When we see what he, how he's treated, how he handles the situation, and that he is God, he's perfect. Talk about a standard. You couldn't have a higher standard. So everything said about him, about these people, is, is way off the mark, way below the belt. But there is no one who's more humble than he is who's able to take it and receive it, even though it's an absolute and utter lie. It's not even true. But you know the best thing in all of this, in this particular passage, is that if you've ever been rejected, despised, hated, ridiculed, whatever, Jesus has experienced and felt it to a much deeper level than you have. He was willing to submit himself to this kind of rejection. His own people grabbed him and were about to throw him off a cliff. Because he's Jesus, well, he says, my time's not now, see ya. He splits. He's able to get out of there. But later on, we're going to see a Jesus who willingly submits himself at one moment he could have spoken and had them all dissolve in midair, allows them to spit on him, laugh at him, falsely accuse him, slap him, throw him around, beat him, abuse him. He submitted. He allowed. And he did it for your sakes. Here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Here's the amazing thing about our God. He's not some distant God off in the heavens who doesn't understand your life, who doesn't understand your plight, who doesn't understand your difficulties, your struggles, your sufferings. He was willing to take them on and take them on more deeply than you've experienced them and suffer in ways that we don't even understand. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be hated. He knows what it's like to be lied about. He knows what it's like to be despised. He knows what it's like to be abused. He's been there. 
As Isaiah 53, 3 puts it, says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. And he did this. And the connection I want us to see is when we had Hebrews 2 read for us this morning. 2.17 and 18 declares, Therefore, he has to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And over in Hebrews chapter 4, it declares, because we have such a great high priest who was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin, we have this great high priest Let us have boldness and confidence before the throne of grace, knowing that he intercedes for us on our behalf. Don't ever think that God doesn't understand. Not only has he felt it and experienced it here at this moment in time in history, but even with you, do you really realize he dwells with you and he suffers with you? His heart breaks with you. And one day, after all his prayers and intercessions, it's going to be answered. And it will all be justly dealt with. It will all be rectified. It will all be turned on its head. It will all turn out for good and for blessing. And it's going to because he's praying for you today. He's praying for you. He understands it deeply. Don't ever think he doesn't. No matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, know that you have a Savior who is with you in it, who understands and gets it more deeply than you do, who feels it and has felt it. He's with you in it. And he's going to make sure that it all will turn out for good. It all will be made right. That's the Jesus you serve. Amen. Father, we're so grateful and we're thankful that we have Jesus, that he suffered in every way that we have, more so. He's been rejected and despised in ways we don't even understand. Father, we're grateful that you know our pain, our sorrow, that you know our sufferings, you know what we've gone through, and therefore we know we can come to you. Full assurance of faith, knowing that Jesus is truly our great high priest who prays for us, intercedes for us, even in the midst of it, knowing that it will all be worked out for good. And we are going to love the answer that we see in the end. And for this we praise you. Amen.